This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. A recent flooding in New York City, Vermont, and Texas has reminded all of us that the effects of climate change are rapidly intensifying, even in areas we might not typically associate with climate-induced disasters. With its frequent earthquakes, mudslides, and wildfires, California is no stranger to catastrophe. On this episode, Commonweal's Claudia Avila Cosnahan, a resident of Southern California, speaks with Rosanna Shaw, an environmental reporter at the LA Times. Shaw's new book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline, takes an unconventional approach to climate change journalism, blending scientific analysis, reportage from along California's 1,200-mile coastline, and wisdom gleaned from working-class and indigenous communities. Her conversation with Claudia is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Claudia. It's good to see you today on the Commonweal Podcast. Good to see you too, Dominic. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your conversation with Rosanna? Of course. So Rosanna Shaw is an environmental reporter for the Los Angeles Times. She specializes in stories about the coast and the ocean. She was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2020 for explanatory reporting, and her work has been anthologized in the Best American Science and Nature Writing Series. Her debut book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline, is an invitation to take stories across the West Coast and see the greater picture of how coastal communities are grappling with the rising sea level, the question of physically retreating or fighting, building seawalls that destroy beaches and facing flood damage for the foreseeable future. While she describes the staggering data about the effects of our climate crisis on the coastline and the ways in which communities and the state are responding, she insists that changing the way we perceive our relationship to the ocean is a requirement for a successful retreat and a future that allows humanity to live with the ocean and not against it. Rosanna tells us that the rising sea levels will require us to retreat whether we are prepared for it or not. The sea cannot be dominated. As I read her book, I was reminded of Pope Francis's Laudato Sea. In it, he blames, in part, the destruction of God's creation to the incorrect biblical interpretation of the Genesis account, which grants humanity dominion over the earth. Francis says that it has encouraged the unbridled exploitation of nature. I think this unbridled exploitation comes with an expectation that nature will, in fact, be dominated. Rosanna begins her book comparing the relationship the native coastal people had to the ocean and the coastline to that of conquering Spain, Mexico, and then America. Her book is not about religion or Christian conquest, but for me, the question is present because she begins her book by highlighting the spirituality of the native coastal people as an example of an appropriate relationship with the coastline. Rosanna Shaw's reporting is, it's about relationship. Thanks, Clay. It's great to have somebody who lives in California speaking with a writer from California about this topic. And you mentioned La Dato C2. And obviously, I think with the sequel, I guess people are calling it La Dato Deum, released even as we're recording this, will probably get a lot of people to think as well. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Rosanna Shaw, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Claudia. It's been such a pleasure reading your book. And I, I hope that our listeners are able to embrace 
our coast in the way that you invited us to do so in your book uh, through this conversation. So like our coastline is 1,200 mile long. It's made of made up of 15 counties, 60 cities, and is home to about 27 million people. Sometimes I joke with people and say that when they talk about the northern part of California, I'm like, oh, that's the other state of California. Don't ask me questions. I don't know what it's like there. <laughs> but but then you invite us to think uh, to really enter into specific communities. And I think that's what makes us feel like this gigantic state can be small and inviting and intimate. Can you t- talk a little bit about one specific place that you wrote about? I, I'm thinking about Imperial Beach. Can you tell us what were some of the controversies that happened there and even some of the lessons that were learned and that continue to be learned there? I really wanted this book to go to places that felt less obvious. When we think about the California coast, we often think of Malibu or Santa Monica or Laguna Beach and all these other more iconic places. But what about the more working class towns that also call this coast home? And so Imperial Beach, this border town south of San Diego, literally right on the border with Mexico, it's surrounded on three sides by water, the ocean, the Tijuana River, the bay, and their beaches are constantly closed because of the untreated sewage that comes in from Mexico that they have no control over that flushes down the Tijuana River and straight into the ocean, and then it pollutes their shoreline. And on top of that, the ocean is rising. What does their future look like? And how did they fit into this broader conversation that so often people might dismiss as quote-unquote rich people problems. One-fifth of the town in Imperial Beach is lower income. A lot of homeowners are first-time homeowners, and this is their little slice of the California dream. The mayor at the time, Serge Dedina, he spent years trying to be proactive about this issue, recognizing that trying to fend off the water is not something that we can humanly do. And so how do we do this? in a way that protects the community, attends to the community's needs. And it was fraught at first because here is a community that already often feels like you're overlooked or forgotten. And now you're telling me that we have to move or we have to completely reconsider what it is that we have built. Now you're telling us the ocean might destroy it all. That's a really hard conversation to have with the community. And so there was a lot of emotion that happened right when the mayor and the city planners tried to start this conversation. The lessons learned from communities where the approach to sea level rise planning didn't work was when there's this top-down approach and someone else is telling the community, this is the problem and this is what's good for you versus, hey, let's get everyone together and let's figure out what the problem is protecting coastal habitats and public open space is a goal. Sea level rise adaptation, planning for the future is just a way to achieve these goals. And so I think giving everyone a sense of responsibility and a sense of participation is so important from the start. Can you say a little bit more about how dramatic the rise is? Because I think when we think about sea level rising, it feels like it could be a distant problem. 
Can you speak a, a little bit about this reality that isn't so much in the distance? Yeah. So we live in California. Wildfires, the drought that still has not ended. We just had a hurricane. There are just so many other climate-related disasters that feel so much more present and intense in front of mind. And with sea level rise, the term I hear often in kind of the science and policy space is slow moving disaster, right? Like you can't stand on the beach for one afternoon, look at the ocean and feel like there is a disaster that is imminent. But at the same time, sea level rise is also where the heart of climate change is happening because the ocean, this massive body of water, this massive force is what has been absorbing the majority of the excess heat from the excess carbon emissions that we've been emitting into the atmosphere, into the planet for the past couple centuries. And so the ocean is rising. It's absorbing the brunt of this heat. We are at this threshold with sea level rise where you add a king tide, like a higher than high tide that happens twice a year. You add an El Nino season, which is something that we are expecting going into this winter. You add not just one storm, but two storms. And then you add a storm on top of that. And these compounding factors very quickly add up to what it might look like more permanently a few decades from now. And so one feet of sea level rise, two feet of sea level rise, three feet of sea level rise, that could be something we could easily experience now when the perfect storm happens. And the perfect storm is happening more and more often. This is not just a California problem. Think about Manhattan. I, I grew up outside of Boston. I'm thinking about the waterfront. So many of our built landscapes today, the places that we live and call home, have been altered so dramatically that we have lost our sense of connection to where water is supposed to go, right? Like wetlands and marshes that we have filled and built upon. And now that the ocean, is, the water is trying to move back in. What do you do about this? This idea of the slow moving disaster and how we can't wrap our minds around it, that's also not just a California thing. I think we can apply that even to the greater conversation of climate change in general. We consciously very much feel and know that the world as we know it today, the world as we love it today, is not going to be the same 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now, and that things are going to change and that we're going to need to change with it. But we also know that we don't need to make any of those changes necessarily today. But what does it take to go to start transitioning from short term to long term? This middle ground that is this uncertain amount of time is where we are stuck right now. And so I, I'm constantly thinking about what it means to just start taking those small incremental steps to transition from short-term to long-term interests. And that's where the politics come into conflict. That's where our economic systems in which we place value onto properties and communities come into play. Yeah. Can you say more about the kind of economic and financial decisions that need to be made along the coastline? One of the things that, that I'm thinking about in, that you mentioned in your book is, is sometimes it seems like in order to make some necessary decisions at this moment requires the cooperation of individual public landowners along the coastline. Can you speak a little bit about that? 
We buy property to invest in it and to hopefully give it to our children and, and our grandchildren. And we hope that by buying property, the, the, the value will increase. That is a tenant of American homeownership and something that has been baked into the American dream, right? And, you know, a lot of these systems that support that, the 30-year mortgage, for example, take that 30-year time frame and put it into climate change. What does the What will the world look like 30 years from now, given everything that we know about climate change? So I think they're just like, there's a disconnect between some of the systems that we have created and the realities that we have to face with regards to climate change. So throughout your book, you do bring a myriad of voices into your conversation. Was there anyone in, in specifically that that you talked to or an event that has happened that you looked into that really impacted you personally, that sort of made you think anew or in a fresh way about your own personal commitment to this work? Someone who's coming to mind right now is a incredible mother-daughter duo who they're Tongva and Chumash. And I was on a boat with them on this really cool field trip that just really expanded the way I thought about the ocean itself. Something that they did before they got on the boat was to ask the ocean for permission to enter. And they were like, it's knocking on your grandmother's door before entering. And I was just so moved by that. I have goosebumps right now thinking about that because so much of our disconnection with the ocean is what has got us here, right? We think we can wall off the ocean in perpetuity. We think that we can somehow overcome this quote-unquote threat of sea level rise. But what we could do instead is actually see the ocean as, as a being in itself and that this is something that we should have a relationship with and it doesn't have to be in conflict with each other. I got the sense that you are so familiar with the turns of the coastline and the elbow of California, for example. <laughs> But just the way that you described places, it made me feel like someone who describes the curves of someone they love. It, it felt very I much that. like a that's how that's really how I thought about it as I read it. And and that, so it made me think about it, a few things. You speak of the Shumash's people's collective sense of our, which is understood mm -hmm. not as a not as something that belongs to me, like our. The term our or mine, for example, can mean this mm -hmm. is mine. I have ownership. I have dominion. You describe the Shumash concept of the sense of our as one of like mutual belonging. So again, it felt like very much like a love relationship. Later on, you then reference the Kashia people and how they consider the space where the water and the land come together as inherently sacred. Uh, and I really sat with that moment when you invited us to reflect on that, that space where the land meets the ocean is a sacred space. Do you believe that it's important for people to connect to the ocean and the coastline spiritually for us to get to a place where we can talk about how to actually relate with it and plan for this slow moving? disaster ahead of us? Yeah, that's beautiful. And short answer, yes, we should all connect to the ocean and the coastline. And you can do that 
in all these different ways and in your own way. And I think that was that was really grounding to me because every person I spoke to had some form of connection to the ocean. Part of the book is just encouraging people to go deeper on that, right? And to also question whether or not you could reset your relationship with the ocean or expand upon it. And I I was personally challenged to do that as well. I actually have done this thing since I started covering the coast where every time I'm out by the beach, I'll be like in quote unquote, like reporting mode first. I'll ask questions. I'll be listening. I'd be so focused on what the other person's trying to say and trying to process it and internalize it and to live it and feel it and breathe it and to be able to just understand what this person's worldview is that once that moment is gone and we've said our goodbyes, I'll always do this thing where I'll just stand on the beach, look at the ocean, look at the coastline, jot down in my notes like what color blue it is that day because always a different kind of blue and looking at how the light pierces through the marine layer and glimmers on the water and how the waves that's there rippling towards the shoreline breaks in these different ways and refracts the light and, or diffuses the light depending on the time of day. And to really just know the curves of how the tide line is like a marriage with the sand and the cobble and yeah, just what the coast presents to you when you just hit pause and start to pay attention. I love your word spirituality because I think that means so many different things to different people, right? And I think my most spiritual moment with the ocean, I'm thinking about it now, a book arrived on my doorstep and it was from my editor. It's a book of one poem and it's called Adjust the Level of the Sea. And it literally is one poem with 156 lines that are symbolically 156 waves of thoughts and actions to be realized in contact with the sea. It's by David Horwitz. And it's literally one line per page. And it's very rhythmic like the tide. And I'll just say things like, let the sea hold you, be displaced by the sea. And then there were these two juxtaposed lines that just really stuck with me and it was see the sea be seen by the sea and that sense of being seen by the sea was so transformative for me and so now every time now every time i'm out by the ocean it's not only thinking about what i'm seeing but i'm thinking about what we look like from the ocean's perspective we'll have more of claudia's conversation with rosanna shaw in a moment I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. You just finished talking about a kind of falling in love with the ocean and the ocean being, you even described the ocean as, you, you described liking to contemplate the ocean looking upon you. I think you're inviting the reader in your book into a kind of paradigm shift to focus mm-hmm. less on the climate crisis 
the impending effects of the climate crisis and more on the fact that it's already here and that we have to change with it. We have lived as if the coastline is permanent, Mm -hmm. but the coastline's always changing. Retreat doesn't need to be synonymous with failure. Can you expand on the need for a managed retreat and how maybe you think of managed retreat personally, considering the kind of relationship that you have with the ocean? Yeah, retreat could be seen as failure or it could just be seen as marching in a new direction. So much of the way we talk about climate change, the fight against climate change, even that term itself, like people in the trenches of sea level rise adaptation, these war analogies are so embedded in the way we and ch- in, in the way we talk about climate change and how to respond to it. But does it need to be that way? And yeah, like we just said, like so many people today think of the coast as static, as this fixed line in the sand, even though anyone who's ever been to the beach knows that like the coastline is never the same, right? This tideline changes not once, but twice, but multiple times in a day. And so part of the shift in our relationship with the ocean is to recognize that the coast itself is supposed to move. The ocean is supposed to move and we're supposed to move with it. And this is not failure. Rather, it is checking our own human-centered sense of supremacy and to reconsider what it means to actually live more sustainably in a space that is inherently always changing. We're running out of time, but we still have time today to start planning and manage it in a way that could feel more equitable and fair to people. It can be managed for now, but it will be unmanaged if we wait until the disaster hits. So as what, I mean, we have a, a presidential election coming up in the next year, and I imagine that um, the climate crisis will be one of the topics at hand. What, based on your conversations with people, based on your experience of reporting along the coastline, what should, are are essential points for conversation around policy? I think there's a lot of noise out there around Mm -hmm. what people talk about. What should we be talking about, really? Oh, man, how much time do you have? When we talk about climate change and taking action, you can almost, you can clump them into basically two broad categories, mitigation and adaptation. And so often we conflate the two. And so mitigation is stopping and slowing down the actual effects of climate change, curbing our fossil fuel emissions, transitioning to electric vehicles and solar power and other like less dirty energy California talks a great talk and is walking the walk to some degree. And so mitigation is part one. And part two is adaptation. And this is where a lot of things get lost in the conversation because we think we're doing a lot on climate change because we're talking about all these efforts to mitigate the effects of climate change. But adaptation is about sitting down and talking about and doing things in response to the consequences of climate change that we know are actually going to happen. And so sea level rise is very much an adaptation question because even if we stopped all carbon emissions tomorrow, 
the amount of sea level rise that's baked into the ocean right now, given all of the heat that it has absorbed since the Industrial Revolution, the sea will continue to rise. And that rise will look the same through 2050, whether or not we completely stop fossil fuel emissions tomorrow. The analogy that I like to use is imagine just like hitting a speeding boat in neutral all of a sudden. It's going to still keep moving forward in the same direction for a bit until you're able to stop it or turn it. And that's where we are at with sea level rise. So I think my first call to action would be, yes, we might be taking climate action and talking about climate change in more bold and very important and necessary ways, but make sure it's not just about mitigation. It has to be about adaptation too. And adaptation is the part that really challenges us to really think what it means to redesign our systems and status quo is going into the future. So is there anything that stands in the way of us imagining and implementing specific plans on the ground for what is already happening? Yeah, the two words that I felt like I had to really push people on were the words resilience and restoration. We really need to sit down and think about what we think the definitions of those words are. Because resilience in kind of the old school form is we shall overcome. A hurricane sweeps through New Orleans and we're going to rebuild exactly the way it was before. And that is strength and that is resilience. But do we actually want to rebuild exactly the way things were before? And what is actually resilience? And is resilience actually just making sure our infrastructure and our built environments withstand the forces of nature? Or is resilience also thinking about what it means to care for overlooked and forgotten communities that got erased from this conversation or sacrificed in the spirit of modernization? Is resilience truly thinking about what it means to not just fear the ocean, but love the ocean. But this idea, too, of what it means to restore something. There are still some folks out there who think that restoring a wetland means this over-romanticized notion of bringing it back to what it was before. But what was it before? And what is the baseline? And how far back are we going? And at what point have we altered the environment so much that nature and the kind of birds and animals and wetland creatures have like also evolved with it and at what point are we building towards the future and that is that really truly just replicating the past and so i think we get stuck sometimes in those conversations too on what it means to restore the coastline so often people ask me what can we do about climate change and so many of the actions we have to take are so large and so systemic in nature, but that doesn't let us off the hook from individual actions. I think the very easy first step is to start talking about it. Thank you so much, Rosanna. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you for such thoughtful questions. Rosanna Shaw's new book is California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline, and it's available from Heyday Press. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.